I am Tom Holland, and this is Fitness Disrupted 2.0. Why do I want to say at the beginning of every show how great the show is? <laughs> because I love what I do, and oh my gosh, is this a cool concept if I do say so myself? And I just did. Three examples of experts who said their accepted theories were completely wrong. I, I wanted to shorten that title. I don't know how to do it. This is really interesting and important. Three concepts you're going to absolutely know. And the people who put them forth, put, yeah, put them forth, have come out and said completely wrong. Now, two of them I completely agree with based on what we know now. And that's important. Going to get to that in one second. And one I don't. <laughs> one I don't. And, and it's like one of the most prolific sports scientists who put forth a theory and now completely is 180 degrees in the other direction. All right? When I write books, written six, marathon, triathlon, sports nutrition, beat the gym, micro-workout plan... I say and have said in every single one when I'm talking about research or a concept, I will say what we know now or research currently shows. You know why? Two reasons. Because science changes and two, I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> like the second one is the selfish one, but like I've never understood, especially researchers who have said this is the only way, only to be proven wrong. Now, to their credit, not so much the third one, <laughs> uh, they're open-minded enough to say they're wrong. So that's interesting, right? And there are many professionals, many in the industry who don't and won't ever admit they're wrong because most of them don't think they are. And let me say this, most don't continue to learn. You know, one of the many reasons I never wanted to own a gym, and I did for a short amount of time, learned a lot, reinforced everything I thought and more about the negatives, was I didn't want to not be able to do things like work with clients, get out, do all the different things I do. Because I look at a gym like a restaurant, right? You got to be there. To be successful, you got to be there. You got to be, be doing things that are awesome for those of you who are gym owners and love it. Thank goodness, because I, I want to go to the gym. I just don't want to own one because I want to do many different things, including continuing to study and read lots and lots of books because we are so often caught, not we, the industry in old research. And that is another reason why I've touched on many of these topics already and I will touch on them again. Because I want to just inundate you with research, study after study, expert after expert. So both you and I can then go, this is probably true. Could it be proven wrong in the future? Incorrect? Sure. There's always that possibility. But when we slowly have this preponderance of evidence along with evolution and common sense, then we start to go, maybe that's true. And you know what? I go by results and what I have done for over 30 years. 40 if you're just counting working out on my own 30 over 30 in the industry 
you know, eggs are good, eggs are bad, right? There's so much misinformation and, and 180 degree change of thought. And that's why people are so confused. But when you look at where a lot of this comes from, especially like the rice principle, it, it's one of the ones I got to talk about. The doctor says, I, I made it up. I was writing a book. I needed something catchy. Literally what he said. Now, there's some research, obviously, associated with it at the start. But this is what I say when I bring you studies and we look at how they're done. And one of the overarching flaws in exercise and nutrition research is that it self-reports. Because it's the cheapest, easiest way for us to do most of these types of studies. And they're flawed for obvious reasons. People overestimate how much they exercise and underestimate, underreport what they eat. That's a problem. All right, so what am I going to talk about? Three concepts that the very people who either started it or were part of originating that concept, that's the first one, have said wrong. I was wrong. And the first one is motion-controlled shoes. Pronation is specifically. And then going to get to uh, shoes in general. So motion control shoes, pronation is bad, is what was uh, what was said, and then extrapolated out to running shoes in general. So pronation is bad. We're going to, that's the specific concept, which then is extrapolated out to shoes, running shoes in general. The second one I've already given away, the rice principle. Rest, ice, compression, elevation. Two of those, the doctor who came up with that acronym has said absolutely wrong. Okay? And then the third one, carbs. Specifically for sports performance, that's where it came from. And the the guy, Timothy Noakes, who wrote the book, The Lore of Running, one of the most preeminent sports scientists out there. I have the book right on my uh, studio desk, pulled it from my shelf. It's one of the reasons I love, I need books. I read digital copies too, but I have to have the book. I'll read the digital, but I, I, I want I want to be able to hold it and read it and go back to it physically. And yeah, I got the, let me tell you how many, since the fourth edition is what I have, 920 some odd pages, okay? On running, the war of running. Timothy Noakes, Dr. Timothy Noakes. In that book, carbs, 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 carbs. <laughs> now, specifically for sports performance, Dr. Noakes has since done a 180-degree turnaround, not just on this, but on sports drinks too and hydration and things like that, but I'm going to leave it to carbs for this show, and said, no. Literally, literally says carbs are the devil. Okay, so there we go. Three concepts. Going to get it all done in 30 minutes. So let's get going. Overpronation is bad, all right? Again, this is specific. You may go, who cares? But it's it's shoes in general. So we're going to extrapolate that out. But it's it's a really important concept when it comes to running and running injuries and shoes and born to run one and born to run two. Just interviewed Christopher McDougall. I'm going to interview um, his co-author coming up as well. And, you know, I talked with him about extremes, you know. <laughs> We're not meant to run completely barefoot all the time. Doesn't make sense. Uh, common sense, again, you're going to cut your feet. You know, the uh, the weather, uh, man-made roads might occasionally call for sh- man-made shoes. But 
where did it all start from? Like, where did it start that we were told we needed shoes to correct something like overpronation? So pronation is how your foot rolls. There's supination, pronation, basically keeping it simple, uh, rolling in, rolling out, okay? And between 1984 and 1985, like when the running boom really started, you know, Jim Fix, another book I have in my in my vast library of exercise and nutrition and motivation, sports psychology, psychology books, running, you know, started it all. Uh, 25 million Americans started to run on a regular basis between those two year, or three years, you know, 1984, 1985, 1986, crazy. And then overuse injuries obviously came hard and fast. And there was a guy, Dr. Uh, Stan James, who supposedly first published and coined the term overpronation in his 1978 article that was in the American Journal of Sports Medicine, okay? And so research began, right? And research into running shoes, specifically Nike's coming out, right? Oh my gosh, people are running, we can make money off of that, let's do some research though. And the first research study on the recurrence or occurrence of running injuries published in 1981, another in 1989, 1991, and they're just talking about injury rates, like from 20 some odd percent up to 65%. So running, injuries, footwear, right? And so in response to that, they had motion control shoes introduced somewhere in the 1990s. And that term pronation became more and more uh, utilized and it was a negative connotation. It was a negative, right? Overpronate, pronate. And they were saying this was one of the causes of running injuries. Okay. And there was a guy, a, a guy, <laughs> a researcher, PhD level, uh, but he's a guy, uh, Dr. Ben O'Nig, uh, University of Calgary. And he was at the Human Performance Lab there. And in 1985, supposedly, he said pronation was a bad thing. So he's doing some research into it, right? And to his, in his defense, like, they're just looking. They really early into the research um, on running. And pulled a, a little paragraph here from an article on this concept and pronation in the early days. Uh, Nig and co-workers, Nig and his co-workers, noted that common sense would predict that smaller... Um, Impact force peaks would occur would occur while running on softer midsoles. However, the reality was that the subjects reacted differently than expected to variations in midsole hardness. Each runner, this is amazing people, body is such a smart machine, each runner by using central nervous system, CNS control, modified their landing strategy during running depending on the midsole hardness to keep the external impact force peaks constant. Therefore, the common assumptions made then, so important, and even today, that midsole hardness can always be used to reduce impact forces during running is erroneous. So they thought, hey, if we modify a shoe to prevent this pronation, minimize pronation, that's going to be a good thing. It wasn't. And there was a study that came out in the British Journal of Sports Medicine about this, a new review where Dr. Nig and his colleagues went back and they looked at decades of studies, meta-analysis about running injuries, shoes, and the relationship thereof. And what they found was wrong. Wrong. They, they determined that pronation does not seem to be 
a problem that needs correction. Okay, and in one study about pronation, they had a thousand runners, right? A thousand novice runners, some of whom pronated, some of whom did not, and they're given the same running shoes and followed for a year. At the end of that time, what happened? Many of the runners who had normal feet, quote unquote, who did not overpronate, overpronate, they got injured. But a much smaller percentage of those who overpronated had been sidelined. Okay. Dr. Nig and his colleagues write in their review of this that these findings suggest, and I quote, that a pronated foot position is, if anything, an advantage with respect to running injuries. We don't want to stop the foot from doing what it normally does. I need five hours to go into this into more detail. And I believe that obviously there are some issues biomechanically that people have. But far too often we try to fix something that doesn't need fixing. And again, uh, Dr. Nig, I would argue, early research, he went with the information he had at the time. He had his hypothesis. He and his colleagues did. Turned out not to be true. And not 100% of the time. Again, I don't want to say that some people don't need certain shoes to do certain things. I will say this. I'm going to leave it here because i got to get through two more. And, you know, just interviewed, as I said, Christopher McDougall. And I think there's extremes, right? I know there are extremes. And the answers often lie in the middle, in the moderation side, in the, you know, common sense side. Sure, if you've worn motion control shoes your entire life and you try to run barefoot at 40 or 50, you're going to have problems. We need to strengthen our feet. We need to be as natural as possible for as long as possible. So kids should have that kinesthetic awareness and we shouldn't screw around often where we do. All right. So that's it. Pronation, not what we thought it was. And the researcher Dr. Ben O'Nig, University of Calgary, 1985, out in 2005, he said, yeah, my hypothesis was not what I thought it should be. You know, the findings were, have changed, okay? So, and we can extrapolate that out to shoes. I, again, uh, we'll get into this in much greater detail. I'm not an all or nothing person. I have like four or five different pairs of shoes from trail running to minimalist to Vibrams to more cushion for longer distances. I rotate them like crazy. My goal is to not get injured and to use every tool possible and not to go, oh, I'm only going to wear the Vibrams around. I'm going to be that person. No, I'm not. Okay, enough. Really cool. Let's get even, these get cooler as we go. Rice, rest, ice, compression, and elevation. How long have we heard that, right? All the rage. I did an incredible interview with Lindsay Berra uh, on Fitness Disrupted, not 2.0, but original uh, feed called the whole the cold hard truth about icing she's a phenomenal journalist sports writer also the granddaughter of yogi berra and we talked all about this the ice um specifically but the doctor and so you should listen to that <laughs> if uh, you're interested in that after i go through my quick explanation of this flawed acronym according to the doctor i'm going to read his words exactly because he had has an amazing post Okay, Dr. Gabe Merkin, okay? Uh, and let's just, again, reiterate rest, ice, compression, elevation. You get an injury, 
and you are going to do those four things, right? And we're talking about like musculoskeletal injuries, soft tissue injuries. Yeah, you're supposed to rest it. You're supposed to ice it. Compression elevation. Maybe, maybe not. And we can extrapolate this out because icing and cryotherapy is all the rage now. And if you want the current research into that, again, listen to The Cold Hard Truth About Icing. Uh, read her article. That's, uh, I think, verbatim the article she wrote on it. And we did a podcast on it as well. But let me read to you exactly the words of the guy who came up with rice. Okay. When I wrote my best-selling sports medicine book in 1978, I coined the term RICE, rest, ice, compression, elevation, for the treatment of athletic injuries. Um, ice has been a standard treatment for injuries and sore muscles because it helps to relieve pain caused by injured tissue. Coaches have used my RICE guidelines for decades, but now it appears that both ice and complete rest may delay healing instead of helping. In a recent study, athletes were told to exercise so intensely that they developed severe muscle damage that caused extensive muscle soreness. Although cooling delayed swelling, it did not hasten recovery from this muscle damage. Uh, and in parentheses, he's got the American Journal of Sports Medicine, June 2013. So there's the study. Uh, a summary of 22 scientific articles found almost no evidence that ice and compression hastened healing over the use of compression alone, although ice plus exercise may marginally help to heal ankle sprains. Uh, American Journal of Sports Medicine, January 2004. Okay. And he says healing requires inflammation. In other words, let the body do it, like pronation, let the body do what it's designed to do. When you dare, and here's his uh, paragraph on that. When you damage tissue through trauma or develop muscle soreness by exercising very intensely, you heal by using your immunity, the same biological mechanisms you use to kill germs. This is called inflammation. When germs get into your body, your immunity sends cells and proteins into the affected area to kill the germs. When muscles and other tissues are damaged, your immunity sends the same inflammatory cells to the damaged tissue to promote healing. The response to both infection and tissue damage is the same. Inflammatory cells rush to injured tissue to start the healing process. Journal of American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, November um, 1999. The inflammatory cells called macrophages release a hormone called insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1, into the damaged tissues, which helps muscles and other injured parts to heal. However, applying ice to reduce swelling actually delays healing by preventing the body from releasing IGF-1. Applying ice to injured tissue causes blood vessels near the injury to constrict and shut off the blood flow that brings in the healing of uh, the healing cells of inflammation. And he's got, I'm not going to read you all the um, studies, but he backs these up with studies. Well, let me read you this one because it's more recent. Knee surgery uh, and sports trauma. I don't know, even know what this is. It's, it's abbreviated. Uh, it's 2014. Um, the blood vessels do not open again for many hours after the ice was applied. This decreased blood flow can cause the tissue to die from decreased blood flow and can even cause permanent nerve damage. That's obviously extreme if you leave it on too long, things like that. Um, ice is often used as short-term short treatment to help injured athletes get back into a game. The cooling may help to decrease pain, but it interferes with the athlete's strength, speed, endurance, and coordination. Lindsay and I talked about that. Strength training, if you actually do cryotherapy after the, the, the research shows exactly what it says here. 
interferes with strength, speed, endurance, and coordination. Uh, Sports Medicine, November 2011, is one of the studies. In this review, a search of the medical literature found 35 studies on the effects of cooling. Most of the studies used cooling for more than 20 minutes, and most reported that immediately after cooling, there was a decrease in strength, speed, power, and agility-based running. A short rewarming period returned the strength, speed, and coordination. The authors recommend that if cooling is done at all to limit swelling, it should be done for less than five minutes, followed by progressive warming prior returning to play. All right, his recommendations quickly. This is his final paragraph. Again, the guy who came up with rice. If you are injured, stop exercising immediately. If the pain is severe, if you are unable to move, or if you are confused or lose even momentary consciousness, you should be checked to see if you require emergency medical attention. Uh, blah, blah, blah. If possible, elevate the injured part to use gravity to help minimize swelling. A person experienced in treating sports injuries should determine that no bones are broken, blah, 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 and no movement will increase damage. Um, if the injury is limited to muscle or other soft tissue, a doctor, trainer, or coach may apply a compression bandage. Since applying ice to an injury has been shown to reduce pain, it is acceptable to cool an injured part for short periods soon after the injury occurs. Uh, you could apply the ice for up to 10 minutes, remove it for 20 minutes, and repeat once or twice for 10 minutes uh, once or twice. There's no reason to apply ice more than six hours after you have injured yourself. Bottom line there, and there's a lot there, it decreases pain, which is important, but it may prevent, it will, according to the current research, it's going to prevent the recovery. So if you're like, it hurts too much, and I don't really care about the recovery right away, okay. But again, we can get into the strength side and things like that. I get it. You're in pain and you got swelling. Um, you want relief from that pain. But the research is showing if you could gut it out a little bit and allow the body to heal itself the way it should, the way it's evolved to do, that might be better. And I know we can get into the whole psychological, the placebo effect, all that kind of stuff. I'm just giving you what the guy who came up with it said. You know, don't shoot the messenger. I will do many more shows on this. But that's, I, I don't ice myself. I did ice baths for a very short amount, very short amount of time. I hate the cold <laughs> more than I used to. I used to not care as much. Um, but I don't. And I don't feel that I'm losing. Other people, well, you know, we'll get into that more. There you go. Okay, got to get to the final one. Dr. Timothy Noakes, Lore of Running, right here. When you want to, if I drop it, it'll be it's huge. It's the biggest book in my, um, in my uh, bookcase, next to like my anatomy and physiology, like you know, incredibly enormous textbooks. But the guy who wrote that used to say carbs. Okay, um, carbs, carbs, carbs. Let me pull up a quote. Uh, you know, here's a quote about his approach to carbs. Noakes laid out a massive, highly persuasive argument in favor of carbo-loading um, back then, which was a fairly new concept. As he documented, citing dozens of studies, athletes perform better when they ingest carbohydrates before and during competition. Uh, one study found that runners who ate extra candy during the seven days before a long run did better than those who ate extra fat or protein. The evidence suggested it was essential to reload the stores of glycogen, which is carbs, in the muscles and liver in order to perform well. Noakes was so convinced that he worked with a sports nutrition company to produce carb-rich food for athletes. I got to shorten what I wanted to say about him. 
he's gone completely 180 degrees. Completely 180 degrees, okay? Um, Noakes' theory now is that a fat-rich diet helps people lose weight, reduces insulin resistance, and staves off diabetes. I'm quoting. Uh, his regimen is similar to paleo in that he rules out things like potatoes, rice, wheat, and other grains, but he also forbids most fruit and all juices. Um, beans are looked at askance, but dairy is okay. Full fat only. These carb-rich foods are replaced with various types of fats, including saturated fats from red meat and bacon. The whole plan runs directly counter to the low-fat, low-cholesterol advice that physicians and major health organizations like the American Heart Association have recommended for the past 30 years. Now, I think there's many problems with those groups. <laughs> eggs are good, eggs are bad. <sighs> Extremes. Extremes. Uh, he's into banting, which is what pre-Atkins, that's basically what turned into Atkins. So Banting was named for a 19th century British undertaker named William Banting, who lost a lot of weight by giving up bread, potatoes, sugar, all of those things, right? Anything that consisted of carbs, including beer. Banters often consume as little as 25 grams of carbs per day. Okay? So the guy, the sports I read this book, The War of Running. You read all the sports Nutrition books, now I know Christopher McDougall, he's anti-carbs. Here's what I, I know about people who say they're off carbs. Even Timothy Noakes, I would argue, they're talking about sugars. They're talking about processed foods and desserts and candy and cookies Carbs are not the enemy, not according to science right now. Processed foods, ridiculously low in any nutritional value, are not good for us. Should we never have them? I never say never. Of course, that's the 20. But this is pretty shocking, and I'll talk more about uh, Dr. Noakes. Um, what I find really interesting and not surprising is that I would argue comes in with his personal bias. What do I mean by that? If you read up on him, he had a weight issue. Didn't, then he did, right? So according to the research, uh, from his 20s to his 40s, he stayed around 175 pounds. Then when he turned 60, back in 2009, he was up to 225. And he said carbs were out. No more bread, no more desserts. That's his line. Yeah. How about whole grains? I'm still going to be on the whole grain bandwagon until I see, you know, otherwise on my Mediterranean diet. But there you go. Three crazy about faces. Pronation shoes. Maybe we shouldn't stop pronation. Maybe shoes are doing too much. Maybe we don't need $300 shoes or $150 shoes. And the studies are the more you pay is not necessarily better. Then rest ice compression elevation. I didn't even get into the to the rest part, but the rest is we 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 need to move. And those of you who have had injuries, like I'm 53, when I had my shoulder done, you know things like knees, and it depends on the injury and the severity, obviously. But you are immobilized, and then they realized that was not good. And so he does say, what does he say at the very end? Uh, there's no um, get back to get back to activity. 
uh, get back to your sport as soon as you can do so without pain. Um, oh, I, I, I don't think I read that line. Let me, let me backtrack real quickly because I don't want to leave it out. With the rest part, if the injury is severe, again, I'm quoting directly, follow your doctor's advice on rehabilitation. With minor injuries, you can usually begin rehabilitation the next day. You can move and use the injured part as long as the movement does not increase the pain and discomfort. Get back to your sport as soon as you can. Do so without pain. Get back to your movement. Let's do what the body is meant to do. Let's move more. Don't hurt yourself. Don't go to extremes. I don't... Uh, I want six hours for this show. I don't want to adapt to a low-fat diet. I am living proof, experiment of one, of course, my clients as well. Healthy fats, healthy carbohydrates, healthy sources of protein, no extremes. I only call it a Mediterranean diet after I'd been eating that way and was studying nutrition and realized, oh, that's what I do. Because the research was saying pointing in those directions the healthy sources of protein the healthy sources of fats things like that all right enough really cool three examples of experts who said their accepted theories uh we're completely wrong going to talk much more about all of these topics i know there's so much more there uh but we're keeping it to a half hour all right tom h fit instagram tom h fit twitter reach out questions comments you can go to fitnessdisrupted.com email me through the site please follow the show rate the show subscribe any way you can support it greatly appreciated uh, fitness Disrupted 2.0, brand new feed. Remember, there are three things we all control. How much we move, what we put into our mouths, and our state of mind, and that is awesome. I'm going to bring you the best information so we can all live our best lives. I'm Tom Holland, exercise physiologist, certified sports nutritionist. Believe in yourself. <laughs>